Open your Bible if you have one, and uh, we are going to dive into Exodus again. So the last, last week we talked about the first nine plagues, and we talked about what all of those were, what they meant, why they happened, and we saved the last one for its own week because it's such a huge deal. It's such a significant thing that God does in Egypt for this final plague. And so we're going to spend all morning talking about this 10th and final plague that we're going to read about in Exodus 11 and 12 and look at the idea of what it really ultimately would cost both parties for the Israelites to be free, what it would cost the Israelites and what it would cost the Egyptians for them to be freed finally. So if you have a Bible, you can open it to Exodus 11. Um, I will not put it up on the screen, most of the text we're reading, because it's longer portions, or at least it's too long to put up on a slide. So we're going to read Exodus 11 to start with. Exodus 11 says this, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they may ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So we read at the end last week that Pharaoh actually says to Moses, get out of here. I don't ever want to see your face again. And Moses says, fine, I don't want to see you either, basically. And he leaves. And they say they're not going to see each other again or speak to each other again. Uh, And so then we find them speaking to each other again, right? That's a little bit weird. What actually happened was this is part of the last conversation they were having. Basically, before Moses ultimately left Pharaoh's presence, he said to him these things. He said, the final plague will come, and here's exactly what it's going to look like and what it's going to cost you and the people of Egypt. Now, it's very interesting, the instructions that God gives Moses. He says, I want you to go and ask the Egyptians, the Israelites, to ask the Egyptians for stuff, and they will give it to you. I will turn their hearts so they're favorable towards you, and they will give you uh, some of their wealth, some of their riches. They will even like you, Moses. They'll respect you and esteem you greatly. Now, maybe that's partly because Pharaoh, they recognize at this point, is getting them into this trouble, and Moses is not wanting to do these things. I don't know. Maybe it's because God fully just changed their hearts to be that way because it served him in that situation. But the people would show favor to Moses and the Israelites. They would give them these things, and then ultimately, we would read about this horrible final plague coming. Now, in the beginning of, verse, of chapter 11, the first verse, 
the word plague is used. And this is actually the first time technically that the word plague is used anywhere in all of these accounts that we've been giving. So all of what we talked about last week, they hadn't yet used the word plague. We use it when we talk about them because we know that they're plagues, but they finally use it here. And when you translate the word plague literally in the Hebrew, it means a blow. And what it is, is like if you're in a fight with somebody, blows to them, right? Every punch that you throw is like a plague to them. And this is exactly what God was doing the Egyptians. He's wearing them down like a person would, another person in a boxing match or in a fight. Blow by blow by blow, each one of these plagues intended to wear down the people of Egypt. The river, your very source of life, turns to blood. All the fish die. You lose your water. Even the water that you've stored up in other places is turned to blood. The first blow, a hard blow. Frogs coming out of everywhere, a humiliating blow. One that shows that like this great nation of Egypt can just be a laughing stock if God decides to have frogs coming out of everywhere. And we talked about the poem that Hebrew children would sing, frogs on his toes and frogs on his nose and frogs everywhere coming out of everywhere on Pharaoh, right? That they would sing this uh, years later because it was like, that was the plague that really mocked the Egyptians and showed like, like this, this is just totally a circus here, right? There would, be, there would be gnats and flies. The livestock would be killed um, of the Egyptians. People would be covered in boils. Uh, there would be great hailstones and fire from the sky raining down that would destroy so much of Egypt and a lot of their crops. And then the crops that did survive would ultimately be consumed by locusts that would come just swarm through and consume and devour everything. And each one of these things is like a blow by blow by blow. Finally, darkness comes for three days. And these are all plagues meant to just strike the people of Egypt and to weigh them down. Now, one of the things that we asked last week was, how is it okay for God to punish an entire nation full of people when it seems like this one Pharaoh and probably a few leaders were the ones really making the decisions? And the reason that collective guilt like this can exist is because the truth is the people of Egypt had been benefiting greatly from these slaves, that their whole nation had been built into being as strong as it was off of the backs of other people. And so as a result, they were responsible, just like the Pharaoh was. You couldn't live in Egypt and benefit from living there without partially being responsible for the slavery that was driving their economy, their very growth of their nation, and all the things that they did. Now, this plague that Moses is saying is going to happen is horrible. There are almost no words to describe how horrendous this is. The idea that God would come through and that he would kill the firstborn of every family. These are just being firstborn child. It means firstborn of every family, which means a grandfather could die and a father and a child and a son or, or a daughter or mother. Like they could, they could die. You could die if you were just the firstborn of your entire family at some point. This is so many people dying. Now he gives them a warning but he also doesn't say how the Egyptians can get away from it, that there's anything that they can do. He doesn't say, Egyptians, if you do this thing. Uh, I think he's telling the Pharaoh this before it happens, and the Pharaoh could probably choose to let God's people go, but he doesn't. He doesn't take him seriously. And when you deal with something this huge in scope, right, how do we wrap our minds around the fact that God would actually do something like this? The tremendous cost that is involved here 
and the loss of all of this life, it forces us to ask the question, like, what could require something like this? What could require something this extreme that it would even make sense and be reconciled with the God of the Bible that we know is a God of love, right? And a God who is great and who is in control. We have to recognize that first and foremost, these deaths for the Egyptians are punishment to the Egyptians for the very sin of this slavery that's happened for hundreds and hundreds of years. When we first encountered the Egyptians, we were amazed at how brutal and horrible their treatment of the Israelites were. They tried to keep the population down by literally throwing male babies into the river and drowning them. Imagine, imagine even living in this situation. If someone came to your door and you answered it and they, and, and they said, moving forward from this day on, you will be a slave. Your children will be slaves, their children will be slaves, and their children will be slaves. You have no hope for the future outside of slavery. For every part of your family, that's going to be it for you. That to you as a slave, a bad day isn't just coming home at the end of the day and having a bad day. For you as a slave, a bad day is I was beaten today for no reason. And so I'll spend my evening nursing my wounds and trying to get some rest only to go back to serve again tomorrow to potentially get beaten again. And that that is every day of your life as a slave. And that is what you can hope for for your children and what you can hope for for their children. But apart from that, uh, imagine being a person who gets pregnant and then hopes and prays for one thing and one thing only, a girl, because a boy being born would mean immediately him being cast into the Nile and drowned. How horrible would that experience be? How horrible would it be to live as a people under that kind of repression, under that kind of slavery? It says in the beginning of Exodus that we read when we first started this series that Pharaoh was brutal and ruthless with the, with the Israelites. He didn't just force them to work. He went over the top. He was way too harsh and way too brutal to break their spirit and keep them in this place of seeing themselves only as slaves and never anything more than that. It was a horrible, horrible thing. And it was totally unnecessary even for what he wanted to do. This sin of the Pharaoh is tremendously costly for the Israelites. And this is a truth that we know about sin, that the Bible tells us that sin is costly, that when sin happens, that we do the thing that we're not supposed to do, when we choose something other than God's way for something, that there is a tremendous cost to that thing. Now, this is a very hard thing for us to embrace and accept because when we're honest, we don't really necessarily think that sin is that costly. That's why we do it, right? We don't think that it's quite as costly as maybe the Bible says it is. We see how costly it is maybe with other people and the things that they do, but not necessarily the things that we do, right? Or maybe sometimes we do recognize that we sin and we blow it, but we think, you know, uh, I'm suffering more. I'm the one who has to pay the price for this. This makes my life difficult. This makes my life hard. Uh, I, I have little kids, and whenever um, they'll do this thing, kids do this thing where they're playing and one of them gets hurt. And then the other one realizes, I don't know how they even learn this. They just know it instinctually. One of them realizes if I'm hurt too, 
then they'll feel bad for both of us, right? So like they're jumping on the trampoline and my son punches my daughter in the face and then she starts crying and then he falls down on the trampoline and starts crying. And I'm like, what happened? And he's like, oh, I hurt myself, but then she got hurt too. Don't worry about it. It's, we're all hurt. Just leave, go back in the house, right? <laughs> like that's what he does. That's what they do. They just start crying. I'm like, I don't even know how to sort this thing out. So we do something and we're like, you know what? No, it's actually worse for me. It's harder for me. It's fine. I'll deal with it. I'll deal with it. Don't worry about what it does to anybody else. Uh, I think when a lot of us are honest, we have a really hard time really accepting the idea that sin has very great consequences. But the Bible says that sin is tremendously costly. In Romans 6, it says this very simply, for the wages of sin is death. That's what it says. Romans 6 makes it very clear. It says, the wages of sin is death. If sin had a job and it went to work one day and wanted to earn something for its day's work, what would sin earn after a day's work? Death. That's its wages. Sin earns death. Sin leads to death. Sin causes death. We go, well, that's extreme, right? Does it really cause death every time somebody sins? You go all the way back in Genesis, Adam and Eve, everything's perfect, everything's great. Adam and Eve choose to sin. And what is that sin? That sin is simple. We're not going to trust God. He told us something. We're not going to trust him. We're not going to believe him that he knows what's best for us. So we're going to choose something else. Now, what's crazy about that is even though God kicks them out of the garden and they're not living in paradise like they were before, they do keep living, right? They go on living, they go on eating, they go on having family, they go on living their lives together in probably still a relative nice paradise-like environment. And, uh, and, and yet sin leads to death? Yes. Why? Because the death that their sin led to was the relationship that they had with God. Now, here's the whole thing. If God is their source of life and their connection to him is life and that's severed, then they experience death spiritually, then what does that really mean? It's almost as though they can go on living. We can all go on living and doing and acting and building and doing all this stuff and be dead and be dying. And this is what the Bible tells us is actually happening. It says that God, God isn't just this isn't just like a board game for him or like SimCity where he's basically like, let's just get this thing going and then I'll kind of watch what they do and I'll kind of be like, oh, look at what they're building and look at how, oh, they got a new planet. That's cool, you know, and like, that's great. They're doing a pretty good job, you know. I want to see how big this gets. I want to see how much they accomplish. I want to see how much they do. No, it isn't about that for God. For God, it is entirely about one thing. I want to have a relationship with people who are relational and that's why I created them. I want them to know me. I want to know them. Sin happens Spiritual death happens. We are dying even if we don't know it. You've seen this if you've known of people who have been in a marriage that is dying because there's no love. If a marriage that is dying, you've maybe been in a situation like this where slowly over time the signs were there, right? We live together, we, we eat our meals together, we have children together, we spend our time together, we take, go to Little League things together. We, uh, we are together the world would look at us and say, that's a marriage, it's happening. And yet, there is death in the relationship, and as a result of it, it's kind of eroding away at this thing over time. And then eventually you get to a point where you're like, it's just all falling apart now. It's all dead. And I don't even know if we can bring it back. And then you start to trace it back, and you go, what happened? What happened? What happened? You trace it back, you go, that's where it started. That's where the death started. And yet it was weird. It was like we could go on living and doing this thing, living and building a life together, even though the core of that thing between us wasn't really alive. 
right? You've maybe experienced something like that in some other way in your life, where there's death, even if you don't immediately see it happening. Romans says very clearly, where there is sin, there is going to be death. Not, not pain and suffering and ruin and difficulty and your ambitions will go away and you'll miss some really valuable opportunities in your life and you'll, you'll experience depression and some sadness. It says death. Sin leads to death. And most don't believe that. Most of us struggle to believe that who even would say we believe what's in the Bible. We truly struggle with what the Bible says about the state that we are in before we find God. Because the Bible has some pretty sobering and harsh things to say about the state of people, about the things that people do. Now, we can look at it in Egypt and we can see what they're doing and we can see the horrible things that they've done and we can say, well, yeah, I mean, they're slave masters and owners. Their whole economy is built on this system of slavery, right? I mean, who would do something like that? That's horrible, right? But what the Bible tells us is that we all, in our hearts, are prone to sin because we live in the flesh. And as a result of that, that the problem, according to Scripture, the problem with everything that's broken is you. I'll say you because I don't want to say me. The problem with everything that's broken is you. The problem is me. That's what the Bible says. And that's very sobering for a lot of people to hear. I think for a lot of people... Uh, the Bible can feel kind of like an intervention and definitely not in a good way, okay? Where like, if you've ever been involved in an intervention, you know that it's not the most pleasant experience in the world. You get all these people together who really, really love each other and it's great. And then somebody walks in the room and sits down and it's like, here's why we're here. And then it all of a sudden is really painful and difficult. Now, if you've ever even been a person who has experienced intervention that was for you, you really know that feeling. Because what is intervention? It's a group of people saying, we love you, but you're worse than you think you are. You can't, you can't do it. No, you're not going to get better. You're not going to fix it. You're not going to figure it out. You're not going to be able to handle it. I know you think you've got your act together, but you don't have your act together. Nobody likes that. Nobody wants to hear that. And the hope is that in the intervention that the person is won over, that they go, you're right. I agree with you, I'm a mess, right? And that's why you have hopefully a group of people who say we love you and we're committed to doing everything we can to help you not be that way. But for a lot, of, like really honestly, you, you, can, you can say, I, I think that the Bible's, you know, it's got a lot of really good things in it. And, you know, there's a lot of really good things that have come from it. And Jesus says a lot of things that, man, they really make a lot of sense. And he was a peaceful guy and Gandhi liked him and Martin Luther King liked him. And so there's got to be some good stuff in here. And the Ten Commandments even are the basis for a lot of Western law and the things that we do and, uh, and just the, 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 the rules that we have and the ideas of right and wrong. So there's some value to that. And so you give any time at all to it and then you go, whoa, whoa. This is saying some pretty harsh stuff about people, about me. Do I really buy that? Do I really believe that? Do I believe that sin exists in my heart? Do I believe that sin leads to the kind of death that the Bible seems to say that it does? This is why humility is one of the big characteristics of the Christian faith. Because if a person can't be humble, then it means that they haven't really been able to recognize that the problem lies within them. It doesn't lie with everybody else. 
And so a marked trait of a Christian is, is a person who has some semblance of humility and can at least say, I know that the problem that I'm going to focus on, if I'm going to focus on any problem to fix, is going to be the one that's inside here. It's not going to be all the problems outside there. And that humility leads us to taking a different approach to how we see God and what we deserve from him. Instead of saying, why can't God save everyone? We say, why does God save anyone? Instead of saying, why can't God save my child? Or why don't they believe? We say, how is it possible that my child can even believe? That to truly understand what the Bible says and to really live by it and agree with it is to ultimately say, I recognize, I don't deserve these things. That the people of Egypt deserve the punishment that God is going to unleash upon them. And that in the very same way that when we sin, that that sin leads to death, and that death is, a, is between us and God first and foremost, and that ultimately the consequences of that are grave. So this, this death is in part a punishment. It is largely a punishment. It is a blow meant to like knock these people down finally and get, them, get the Pharaoh to release the Israelites. But it is a punishment for the people of Egypt. This is a painful and purposeful punishment for what has been done. And we expect that when God punishes, even then, that he's going to be, you know, uh, gracious and merciful as he punishes. But that's not the way that justice truly works. Because whenever something, someone is wrong, whenever something bad happens, someone has to pay for that thing. Even if someone does something wrong to you and you choose to ignore it or, or to forgive them, you're going, all right, I'll take it on. I'll forgive you. I will take it on. I will overlook it. I will let it go. I will not expect anything in return. That's okay with me. There was this show that I used to watch when I was a kid. It's called Full House. It's on TGIF. And every Friday night, watched it. And it was a sitcom. So increasingly ridiculous things would happen to keep us tuning in on Friday nights. And it's one episode of Full House. My sister and I are watching it. And Stephanie Tanner got behind the wheel of her dad's car and was pretending to drive his car and drove it through the wall of the kitchen. And, you know, this happened and my sister and I just lost our minds. We were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. This is so crazy. We're probably running around the room screaming. And, you know, her dad comes in in this scene and he's probably just kind of like, you know, because that's what dads and sitcoms do, you know, which is super realistic, right? At least in my house. I'm like a really good dad and I would not even let something like that make me probably raise my voice. I've never actually even done that in my house. But maybe if you're not quite like that and your kid drove a car through your living room wall, there would be quite a bit that would have to happen to right this situation, right? More than just fixing a table and saying, I forgive you. There's a tremendous amount of effort that would have to go into actually fixing this and paying for it and making it so that it was as though it never happened again. And that's just the physical stuff. What about the people involved? What about the fact that your kid just drove a car through your kitchen? Now you've got to figure out what to do with them. What do you, how, do you, how, how, to, how to bring justice about with them? We try to do this in the, in the, in the justice system. We, we try to say, okay, there's just going to be damages and then there's going to be pain and suffering. And then maybe if somebody pays you a bunch of money, you won't have any more pain and suffering. But that's not really how pain and suffering works. But okay, I'll take the money. Sure, right? 
We try to do things like this to, to communicate the fact that when someone is wronged, when a person does something wrong, something has to happen to correct that thing. Because a wrong has been committed, and so something has to take that on. Someone has to take that on. You can choose to forgive it or ignore it, or you can choose to say justice has to be done. This person has to pay for this thing. And so this isn't a matter of God saying, okay, fine, I'll be nice to you on this one. I'll be easy with you on this one. I'll take a break with you on this one. God is a just God. And when something happens and when there is sin and there is death that comes from sin, something must happen to cancel that thing out. Otherwise, he just takes it upon himself and he's a holy God. Or, or we just live with it and then we ultimately deal with the, consequen the consequences of that sin down the road. So what happens is uh, there, is a, uh, there is something that Moses will now tell to the Israelites because he's told the, the Pharaoh what will happen with the Egyptians that, the, that, the, that, the, that in the middle of the night, he'll walk outside and that the firstborn of every family will die. Here's what he then tells the Israelites about what they are to do. And if you are an Israelite and you're ever going to pay attention to anything that Moses ever says to you, this is probably the time when you'd want to pay attention. In chapter 12, verses 3 through 13, he says this. God says, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to his number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts, on the two doorposts, and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord." The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God tells the Israelites how they are to be saved from this plague. Because he made it clear earlier, he said, everyone's going to be affected. Not just the rich person, not just the high up person, not just the Egyptian of good standing, but even the slave woman and even a person who is in chains and in jail. Everyone will be affected by this plague. And so God tells the Israelites what to do. And what he explains to them is something called Passover. He'll, he'll tell them, as we'll talk about next week, that this is something that they are to go on to celebrate and to remember year after year after year, to remember that God did this to save his people and to bring them out of Egypt. Now, uh, he tells them to do something that is very specific, right? Uh, very specific instructions. And you have to realize, without any of the 
of the things that they would, without them being able to know the things that we know now about, about Jesus and maybe how this was foreshadowing to him, this might seem fairly arbitrary, fairly, fairly you know, confusing to an Israelite. I mean, okay, take a lamb and do this thing and make the sacrifice. And he could have just as easily said, take a, um, take a tree, go find a tree and cut it down and carve out a boat and fill it up with some dates and put it in the Nile and shoot a flaming arrow into the boat and it'll light on fire and then I'll be, I'll be happy, I'll be good, right? So okay, you know, whatever he says. But it's not arbitrary. There's, there's a reason that God chooses these things and says these things. Part of it, we have the ability to know now, is tremendous foreshadowing to what would ultimately happen with Jesus, who's the Lamb of God himself. But what he tells them to do is he tells them to take a lamb uh, without blemish, without spots, that is a year old on the 10th day, and to keep it in their home until the 14th day. Keep a year-old perfect lamb in their home for four days to become a part of their family. Now, all I think about when I hear this is I have a four-year-old daughter who would become instantly attached to this lamb. And, uh, and then what happens in four days? The lamb is sacrificed. Sacrifice. God calls them to sacrifice something. Something that is pure and without blemish, but something that also is valuable to them. Sacrifice is permanent. It cannot be undone. It is costly, especially for slaves living in Egypt. Sacrifice isn't like anything else that you can say, okay, I'll pay this penalty and then I'll, you know, eventually move on. Sacrifice is by nature permanent. These animals will die. They'll be gone forever. And even though the people can eat the meat, he says to them, they're clearly not doing this so they can have dinner. They're doing this to make up for something so that the Holy, so that this, this angel of death, the spirit of death can pass by when it sees the blood on the doorpost. He tells them to take the blood and paint it on the doorposts. Uh, the, most, the most, like, disgusting thing, if you think about it, to put on the most public part of your house is to put blood on the front of your house to make it clear that you are a family that is covered by the blood of this lamb that you sacrificed. We, have a, we brought an animal into our home about, about eight or nine months ago. His name is Barry. And Barry's become a part of our family. Uh, Barry's our dog, although it could be any animal because our kids name every animal Barry. We always ask what they want to name animal. They, we had a snake named Barry. This is Barry the dog. Um, we knew when we asked they were going to name him Barry, so we were okay with it. Uh, I wasn't going to do this because it feels like, no, I'm going to do it. Okay, this is Barry, the day that he came. This was the day we got Barry. I call this blameless Barry because this was when Barry was blameless. Okay, don't worry, Barry isn't blameless anymore. <laughs> he broke our dishwasher, almost broke our dishwasher yesterday. Like, I, I, I talked to several people after the service who said the same thing have happened to them. When I'm cleaning dishes, my dog gets in the dishwasher and, and eats stuff off the dishes and then gets scared and jumps and all of the racks fall out and dishes break and he, and he gets terrified and runs out the door. And all this is happening, and I'm doing my dishes, okay? Barry is not blameless anymore, so don't think of him that way. But this was blameless Barry. He had never done a thing wrong. There was nothing he could do wrong. Look at him. <laughs> we had a lot of people come over to our house. It was interesting. You know, oh, hey, just want to stop by and see how you're doing. Oh, my gosh, this puppy, right? Can I hold this puppy? This 
dog is a part of our family. Now, he's more a part of our family than probably this spotless, blameless lamb would be. But if, if sin for your family were a matter of, okay, do I want to sin right now? Well, okay, you can sin if you want. You just have to kill your pet. It might change, might change how often sin is happening in your house, maybe. It might change the way that you would handle sin. I'm not recommending this. I'm not saying this. This would make really messed up kids. They'd be in therapy forever, right? My parents were super legalistic. Well, how legalistic? What well, the rules? No, they like killed animals every time that we sinned. <laughs> Gosh, you could talk about that all day. Um, I can't do this. I got to go off Barry. It's too distractingly adorable. What they were called to do was to sacrifice, and the sacrifice was meant to do something. It was meant to pay the penalty for this sin. It is a substitutionary atonement. It is a substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. This atones, it pays for the sin. It pays for the wrong of what has been done, and it is substituting itself. You are taking this pure, blemished, spotless lamb, unblemished, and you are saying, it will substitute for me. I'm going to let its life be taken. I'm going to let it be killed. I'm going to spread its blood over the doorpost to save the firstborn in my family. There's a lot of death in these chapters. There's either death of the firstborn or there's death of these lambs. But those are the only two deaths, kinds of deaths that can happen. And this is the choice that the Israelites would have to make. And they make it, and we all would. If we were told this was happening and this was a way to deal with it, we know what we would choose. I know what you all would choose for your family. You would bring that lamb in, you would let it stay there for four days, and you would kill it. And you would sacrifice it. And you would put its blood over your door as a way of showing that your family is protected and that your firstborn should not die. This is where the rest of that Romans verse comes in. The wages of sin are death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift of God is eternal life. That's a pretty good statement. God's free gift to us is what? It is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he's the lamb, because he's the one, because of what he did, because of what it cost, because of how blameless and perfect he was, and that it wasn't for his sin or himself, but it was instead for us, he's the substitute. Because of what he did, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is not good for the lamb. The lamb has died. This cost a lot for Jesus, and Jesus had to die. And because of it, a person can have life instead of death. That you can somehow be someone who has sinned, who has caused sin, um, who has caused death from your sin, and yet you can still somehow have life. How is that even possible? Because of this sacrifice. Because of what Jesus has done. And that because of that, that despite the sin and the corruption and the guilt and the shame, despite all the baggage that you have, despite all the history that you have, despite the things that you've done, the person that you even have become sometimes, 
that if you believe in Jesus and you repent and you turn to him, that there won't be death because he already died. You, there won't be any killing. There won't be any more sacrifice. His death has substituted your own. This is the gospel. This is a difficult couple of chapters to wrap our mind around because of the brutality involved in it. There is death everywhere. And that's because this is a chapter that deals with the consequences of the sin that we've read before all the way up to this point. We need this every single day of our life, this information, this truth. We need it every single day of our life. We need to know exactly what has saved us, exactly who has saved us, exactly how we are saved. We need to know that we are saved. We need this every single day of our life. More than we need anything else. You need to know that your life in Jesus, that your life is in Jesus, that your freedom is from Jesus, that it's not from you. It's not from your family. It's not from your job. It's not from your health. It's not even from your marriage. It's not even from your church. It's from Jesus. The people around you need this. Your children need it. Your parents need it. Your friends need it. Everyone needs to know that Jesus is life and that everything else ultimately leads to death. Every other attempt to make up for what's happened, every other attempt to fix things, every other attempt to get things right finally leads to death. Jesus is the one that leads to life. That he's not just my forever friend. He's not just living in my heart. He's not just the one who will make my adolescence bearable or the one who will be my one friend in high school, even if nobody else will. Those are all ways that we describe him at different times in our life because it describes the way that he is there for us. But that's not all that he is. He is complete and total life. And without him, there is death. This is what we read at the very end. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone had not died, was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Like I said before, this is a tremendous couple of chapters in Exodus. We are encountering things that are just so brutal we're encountering a lot of death. We're encountering what it is when God finally knocks down with the final punch an entire nation full of people who have enslaved his people. For a lot of us, the hard part to believe is that the wages of sin is indeed death. That when these things happen and we read about them, 
that, that the truth is that they make sense and not that they don't make sense. That the truth is that they're justified, not that they're unjustified. That the truth is that ours is still actually a gracious God who is still able to be just and not that he's a God that sometimes is loving and nice and other times just really mean and does things that are unfair. And for a lot of us, it's really hard when we're honest to accept and agree with the fact that sin simply leads to death. We think it causes bad things and we sure want to avoid it. But sin is above all else understandable. We live in a world filled with it. It's all we've known. We're used to it. We deal with it. We cope with it. We try to fix it in little ways that we can make our lives better. It's hard for us to believe that sin, even the things that we do, lead to death ultimately, but they do. And for others, that's not hard to believe. It's like, no, I get it. In fact, I'm crushed by the weight of that. I'm crushed by the weight of what I think sin is doing and what I feel like it's done. With the guilt of that, with the awareness of that, with what I see in the world around me, I feel hopeless. And to you, the rest of that verse in Romans is what you need to hear. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. We've talked about this several times, that the hardest things for us to believe are not usually the rules in the Bible. It's not usually the standards that you're called to live by. The hardest things for us to believe are the things that require us to hope. Because we spend so much time just not hoping. Cynicism is so easy. Doubt is so natural. And so when we're told that life is there available in something that Jesus has already done, that just seems too hard to believe. It doesn't seem relevant. It doesn't seem real. And so we go, okay, I get the sin, but I feel hopeless. Or I'm going to spend my whole life trying to live in a way that makes it better, that makes me better, that fixes the problem and fixes me. And no matter how hard you try to do that, it won't work. Because scripture is clear that it's Jesus. But that requires hope. And it ultimately requires faith. Let's pray. Father, there are many of us who are weighed down by sin. We, we recognize what it does and we feel the effects of it. And it's easy to be discouraged. It's easy to think that, that, that this is all there is, Lord, is the pain that comes of it. And and for those, Lord, our, my prayer is that, is that you would provide a sense of relief and a sense of hope, not, not out of fear or desperation to just simply believe in anything that is hopeful, but to recognize that this is the way things are and that there is grace, God, because of what your son has done. And Lord, for those who just don't even recognize it, that just think everything is fine or, 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 or that we don't deserve for things to be the way that they are, God. I pray that you would show exactly what sin does, Father. God, you are so good and you're so just and we worship you because of that, Lord, because of what your son has done, because of the sacrifice that he paid and because that we can have life through it, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. God, we come to you as our Father who tell us that we are your children. We are so overwhelmed with gratefulness because of what you have done for us with your Son.
And God, we know that you are a God who rescues, that you're a God who redeems. You have rescued each and every one of us in the same way that you rescued your people from slavery and bondage. And Father, as we're even just gonna see in a couple of weeks, our tendency is to turn back to bondage and back to slavery, to wanna turn back to being something other than your children. Our prayer, God, is that when we would be tempted to do that, that we would be reminded of that one short verse in Romans that reminds us the consequences of sin and the free gift that you give us in your son, Lord. Let that be what motivates us to live, Father. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.